You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Father, thank you that uh, you've spoken to us, that you direct our lives, that you've given us commands, promises, counsel, wisdom, insights, all kinds of things in your scripture. Stories, not so that we'll just know an old story or be entertained like we're watching a show, but lessons for us to learn. And I pray as we open up the book of Judges and we see a lot of darkness and glimpses of hope and renewal, that you'd bring renewal into our lives. I pray for marriages to be renewed. I pray for minds to be renewed. I pray for hearts to be renewed. I pray for lives that uh, need transformation, people that just need a word of encouragement today, and some that need their world rocked today. I pray that you do whatever you want to do. I pray you'd open us up to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we get started this morning, I want to ask you just to finish this statement that I'm about to make, if you're able. It's the thrill of victory and the... Yeah, why is it that we call defeat and associate it with agony or, or sadness or tears? And if I were to do a survey of all of you in the lobby today, unless you're really weird, you're all going to answer the same. If I said, do you want success or do you want failure? Only a really weird person's picking failure. We all want success, but we've all failed. At some way, at some point, at some time, we've failed at something. And while we all hate failure, it's pretty interesting that we enjoy when other people fail. <laughs> March Madness is coming up. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The last game, the cha- after the Final Four championship game, two teams will be there. They're playing each other. One will win. One will lose. They'll cut down the nets. Confetti will fall. The winning team will throw their hands up. And then the camera will pan over to some kid crying. He's not going. Hey, we were closer than everybody else. We're number two. Like, if they're doing that, it's peace. It's not we're number two, all right? Like, and my wife always says, don't show the crying people. Like, that, I'm like, the, those, that's like the sweet tears for the victors. What are you talking about? So we had different personalities in that moment. I'm like, it's part of the victory that these people are crying. You tried, you couldn't, we win. Ah. <laughs> now, I usually pick the losing team, so that's not good either. But we, we oftentimes actually do like seeing other people fail. That's why one of the number one viral videos out there are fail videos. Some of you have seen them. Don't act like you don't watch them. I, I'm too good for that. But you'll see things like, uh, we've got some today, some workout videos. There you go. How about this guy? Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten to that point. <laughs> Who taught that guy in the middle how to do? Yeah. What's happening over here? What is that? But a bunch of us, we were going to work out in 2023. How's that going? We're not even trying, but we'll laugh at them. How about dive? You ever jumped into a pool? There's lots of ways you can fail at that. It wasn't intentional, but I noticed we've got a young kid and then a kind of college age and then an adult, and so it just never stops going through this thing. See, it's so you can fail at so much. You can fail when you win. Well, I think we've got a video for that as well. This guy. Hey! There we go. Why are y'all laughing? He failed. Oh. 90% of you are laughing. Some of you would never laugh at anything. This is church. Why are we laughing? And so I understand. Why do we laugh at that? Is it because we're just bad people? Some of us, yes, that is the answer. Yes, I'll be honest, church. But some of us, we like that because we know that there's other people that fail. We're not alone. I made a list this week of some of the ways that I've failed and some of the ways that we all fail in different 
areas of life. I mentioned New Year's resolutions. So I've got about 20-something of them here. I'll read them real quick. Ever fail an exam? Could be an eye exam, could be a driving exam, could be a school exam, swimming test at the pool. Ever fail to get a job or get fired from a job? Ever fail to get a promotion? Maybe at your current job. Fail to wake up on time for something important? Maybe that's why some of you are at second service. I don't know. <laughs> fail to pay a bill on time? You ever not pay your bill on time and you're like, I stuck with the other mail and then you call the company like it's their fault? It's called compound failure. What's there? <laughs> Failed to take a shower later in the day, realized that was a mistake. Failed to return a text, a call, maybe an email. Have you ever sent a text and didn't read the autocorrect? Mm-hmm. There, that's usually a fail. It doesn't help. Why is it never like, oh, that's even better than what I would have said, but whatever. Fail to close a deal, make a sale, prepare for a presentation. Fail to finish something you started. Anyone here read a book? <laughs> Lots of books I've started. It's usually the good information is the first few chapters, by the way. Then the publisher makes them put filler in there, so just jump to the end. Three chapters, jump to the end. Some of my reader friends are going, why is he talking? Anyway, ever failed in a relationship? Ever failed in any relationship? Anybody here? No? The rest of you are married to the person you liked in junior high. I got it. That's all right. Well, it just goes well. Fail to follow through on anything? Fail to make a change in your life? Succeeded at the wrong thing. That's a fail. Fail to keep a commitment? Fail to keep any of the Ten Commandments? Don't lie. This is church. So you can't even be a Christian if you don't acknowledge failure. The beginning of following Christ is, I need a Savior. I need to be rescued from what? From myself? From sin? From God's... Like, I have a lot of things that I need to be rescued from. That's why we call him a Savior. He rescued us. And the way we start relationship is acknowledging our sin. For all have sinned. Yeah, we're one of those. We can do it on our own. So we've failed. But when we see other people fail, sometimes we try to console them. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if you North Carolina native and you've got a kid, whoever didn't make a team, you probably said, well, you know, Michael Jordan from North Carolina, for those of you who didn't know that, Michael Jordan, he got cut from his high school basketball team. Anybody here ever heard or told that story before? No? Many of you? Some of you say it to your kids, and they're like, who's Michael Jordan? You're like, oh, I failed as a parent. Like, how has this happened? And you're like, back in the day, before you could assemble your own all-star team, LeBron, <clears throat> then you had to play against the best players. And Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest player of all time, he would dunk the ball. That's why they call your shoes dunks. It's, his name starts with a J. That's why they call him Jays. Like, yeah, it's, it's the logo guy. Oh, I thought he was a meme. Have you seen the meme? Do you know the meme? We've got the meme. Oh. <laughs> that guy. Oh, yeah. He doesn't just cry on memes. He was an incredible basketball player, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. Six championships, also played professional baseball, a little break there, and uh, Olympic gold medalists. Some of you are UNC fans. I don't know what you're going to say today. I don't want to give you a hard time. Hit a game-winning shot in 1982's freshman of the year. That team had James Worthy on it as well. It's not like he was the only good player, but they gave him the ball as a freshman. What a dumb coach to cut Michael Jordan. Except, have you ever taken the time to dig into that story? Michael Jordan should have been cut. He was a sophomore at his high school in Wilmington. He was only 5'10 at the time, not the 6'6 greatest player of all time that we have seen fly through the air from the free throw line, with his tongue out and posing for shoes everywhere. <laughs> he was 5'10, he couldn't play defense. He had a terrible outside shot. He was a sophomore. Only one sophomore made the varsity team that year. It was his friend, and that guy was 6'7", and the team lacked height. So you're going to take a guy that's 6'7", and isn't that good, or you're going to take a guy who's 5'10", and isn't that good? So Michael Jordan should have been cut, and you know what he did? He went in his bedroom, and he cried, like the meme, but before the meme. 
the younger Michael. And then he decided he was going to do something about it. And he didn't totally get cut. He just got put on a lower team. He was on the junior varsity team. And I don't know if you've ever been to a junior varsity basketball game. Sometimes they don't score 40 points, either team combined. <laughs> Michael Jordan averaged 40 points a game as a junior varsity player. And he worked hard. And he said that whenever I wanted to quit working out, I would envision that list. And my name wasn't on it. And I'd keep working. Oh, and also, God did something. Uh, he grew from 5'10 to 6'3 between his sophomore and junior year. And if you could do that on your own, I'd show you right now. <laughs> There's not a formula for that. But what happened was, in cooperation, God working and him doing some work, his failure became a turning point in his life. We've all failed. Some of you feel spiritually defeated today. I prayed with some people after the first service for various sin reasons, life circumstance reasons. This message will be especially poignant for you. But we've all failed, so it applies to all of us. How does our point of failure become a turning point toward renewal? That's the theme of this whole series. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and it's not because it became a turning point for them. In fact, it doesn't. In fact, this is the darkest passage that we've read in the book of Judges yet. There is no crying out to him. They don't turn to him. In fact, there's not even a judge. In Judges chapter 9, uh, we see what happens after Gideon rules, and it shows what a failure Gideon actually was. But it's an opportunity for a turning point. And so what I'm going to share with you is to give you the points actually in a positive way because it's going to be the opposite. I'm going to talk about the opposite of the cycle that we keep seeing because we don't want to keep seeing that in our day. If you've been with us in this series, you know that in the book of Judges, the problem is there was no king and everyone just did whatever seemed right to them. Follow your heart, be true to yourself, you do you. Like that was kind of their motto and it went bad. The Bible warns about that. I've quoted almost every week, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to us, and our limited, finite knowledge of living for 20, 30, 70 years, we actually don't know more than God, who's infinite and eternal and the source of all wisdom and knowledge. But we think we do, and we see circumstances, and we think we know what's best, and then it gets bad. It's a universal truth. We've seen the cycle. I think we have a cycle slide. You can pop it up there, just as I mentioned it, is that what happens is there's a good leader and they follow God, and so then the people do what God says, and then they get deceived. And oftentimes it's a little bit of compromise, and it's a slow drift. They don't just turn, I'm not following God anymore, is rarely the statement that gets made. But they don't. They believe that they know better than God, and so they compromise. And they know things that God says, and they know about God, and they do their own thing. And then it gets bad. Eventually the pain gets bad enough that they cry out. And the two truths that I've wanted you to know from the series six months from now, when we're not studying judges anymore, is there's always a path to renewal. And when you cry, he comes. And so what we usually see in the cycle is they cry out to God, God raises up a judge, and then there's years where as long as they're following God's plan, things are going well. That's not what's happening here. In fact, the way that Gideon's reign went, it, it fizzled out. Remember, they wanted to make him king, and he said, no, 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 I won't be the king. And, and then he acted like a king. And the people started to worship idols. And then in Judges chapter 9 and verse 1, it starts like this. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, 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 who's Jeroboam? Um, Jeroboam, if you remember two weeks ago, that's a long time, totally get that. 
Lots of news, weather's changed, videos on Instagram, totally got it. Jeroboam was a nickname that was given to Gideon. Do you, do you remember at all why that happened? So let me, in case you don't, here's what happened. Uh, you can go all the way back to Judges chapter 6 and read verse 13 if you want. The, the angel of the Lord, which I believe is Jesus, and you might just think is a messenger from God. That's fine. Either way, the message is coming from God, and God's speaking to him and calling him to come be a mighty warrior, even though he's just a farmer right now. But then Gideon reveals some stuff that's really clearly happening in his heart. But he knows stuff about God. Remember back in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, it said there rose up a generation that did not know the Lord. But it's really interesting that you go chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, every time things get bad enough, who do they call on? The Lord. Yeah, they didn't know him, but they knew about him. Uh, It's what we talk about a lot of times at our church is that there's a lot of people in Raleigh, they're over-churched under jesus They've graduated from all the Bible study fellowship classes. They've got their devotions that they do. They know how to study them. They could quote all the stories. Sometimes I'll say some detail in a story. They'll be like, wait, did you know this detail? You know, Thomas never actually touched his hand. It's like, okay, yep, you got it. Do you know Jesus? Oh, there was this day that I was baptized. Do you know Jesus? Gideon gets confronted by the Lord. Some of us might not know Jesus if he was washing our feet. Jesus is talking to Gideon. Gideon says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why are these circumstances taking place? And we know he knows about God. In fact, we know that his dad taught him about God because what it says next, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Interesting. So his dad taught him that? Hmm. If you jump down to verse 25, uh, what's happened is the Lord and Gideon have had an encounter with one another. Gideon wants to build an altar to the Lord. And the Lord says, uh, before you build me an altar, there's some altars in your life we need to tear down. Hmm. Some of us, the reason why we know failure is because of those altars. The reason why we know spiritual failure is because those altars won't come down, but we keep trying to follow God. Look at what he says. He says in verse 25, that night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal, which... Your father's altar of Baal that your father has. Huh. But that's the same father that was teaching him about the Exodus. That was telling him about being delivered from Egypt. When your words and your actions aren't the same, the words are hollow. What is being called out here is his actions. They cut down the Asherah that is beside it and built then, then built. So tear down an altar. Some of you need to tear down an altar of bitterness, of anger, of materialism, and then build an altar to the Lord on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. And he goes through how to do that very thing. So that's the life that Gideon was exposed to by his dad. And then he tells Gideon, here's what I want you to do. Uh, Go tear down that altar. And then, the next day, people wake up, but Joash, verse 31, that's his dad, said to all the people who stood against him, these people saw that this altar had been torn down a Baal, and they wanted to kill Gideon. His dad says, will you contend for Baal, or will you say, so are you going to save your God? And then he says, and we don't know if this is heart change on the dad's part because of what God was doing in Gideon's heart, or if he just cares more about his kid than he does about any God. He says, whoever comes, whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. 
If he is a God, let him contend for himself. In other words, Baal can contend for himself. Then, look at verse 32. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. Hmm. That is to say, let Baal contend against him. Now, in Judges chapter 9, here's why that's important. Gideon's only called Jeroboam. And what's happening, the narrator of this chapter is showing us, is, oh, Baal will. Baal will contend against Gideon. And God's going to use Baal to expose what was really true in Gideon's heart, and we're going to see it through Abimelech, that's his son, his illegitimate son, by the way. It says, now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem. You might underline that. This is our passage in Judges chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, it's an important place, to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you? Or that one rule over you? So what's better, 70 rulers or one ruler? Oh, logic, it seems, one of you seems to be better. But remember also that I am I'm one of you. I am your bone and your flesh. Okay, so he gets us. Just one guy, he's one of us, he'd represent us. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's one of us, he's our brother. Verse 4, and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth. Now, Baal-bareth is a, a Baal that's specific to their area. They've recreated a god in their image with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't say anything bad about anybody. It's the Bible. They're thugs. These are the people that followed him. And he went to his father's house at Orpah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. That's a bloody verse. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Bethmelo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. <laughs> now, chapter 9 is really interesting because there's some things that happen here that show that God's at work and we would never know that it was God. In fact, many of us, if you said God did that, we'd go, God doesn't do that. But the Bible tells us it was God who did that. He's at work seemingly behind the scenes. And what's happened, and the reason why I've done the outline the way that I've done it is that, that God was really prominent in chapter 6. He's evident in chapter 7. That's where the battle happens, where Gideon's only got 300 men. He's almost absent in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, the things that were tolerated by one generation are now celebrated in the next. It's the same thing we saw in chapter 2 and verse 10. There arose a, a generation that did not know, they know his name. They know the stories. They know about them. They're over-templed and under Yahweh. They don't really know the Lord. So what do they do? Well, I could tell you, here's their problem. Their problem is, the Bible even says there's no king in Israel, and so they've got a solution. He'll be the king in Shechem. We'll make him king of Israel. And we could say, you know, the problem was that there were these types of rulers, and they thought, well, at least it will be represented. And here's the I could go through this whole thing like 50 different ways. I could talk about how they're trying to solve a spiritual problem with a government solution, like all the stuff that we do, but the heart of it is what the Bible says. They did what was right in their own eyes. They were going to function based on what they see and not based on what God says. 
When you operate based on what God says, regardless of what you see, that's called faith. When you do it based on what you see in your 20, 70, 102 years of wisdom, that's called evil, according to Judges. They did evil in the sight of the Lord because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Hmm. So our first point is this. If you think about what happened with Michael Jordan, uh, God did some things. Whether Michael Jordan acknowledged that or not, doesn't matter. You don't just grow from 5'10 to 6'3. God was at work. But for there to be real transformation, there was a cooperation that Michael Jordan had to do some things too. And that's what we see for us. God's doing some work in chapter 9. But for there to be real transformation, in order for the failure to actually be a turning point back to God, which is not what happens in chapter 9, but if that's what we want to happen in our lives, then God's continuing to do his work, but are we going to cooperate with him? And we do that by doing what he says, doing, following his plan. And so that's our first point today. If you want your failure to be a turning point toward renewal, then we must follow God's plan. It's really interesting in this chapter, if you've been reading the Bible from Genesis to this point, it, it flashes out to you like an alarm. Uh, most of us, we kind of read, you know, we'll read a verse here, and then we'll read a verse there, and then we read God to speak to us different times, and then we're like, why doesn't the Bible make sense? And well, You would never read any book like that, but that's what we do. If you just read Genesis through this point in Judges, and you came to chapter 9, you would notice that the author is intentionally yelling Shechem at us. Shechem, why is he yelling Shechem? Is that a bad word? What? Read it, look at it with me. Now, Bimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem. If you underline in your Bible, you might underline that. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says this, say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem. Okay. You get to verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. Not mentioned in verse 4 or 5, but then in verse 6, it's mentioned twice. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. You know what Shechem was? Shechem was a, a place of renewal. Instead of choosing renewal, though, they decide to do what they think is best, and the place of renewal becomes the next step in their spiral because it's not really a cycle in Judges. It's much easier to show you a cycle on a slide or to say it in some alliterated way but it's really a downward spiral because every generation keeps getting worse and worse and worse and more arrogant and rebellious and hardened. And that's why this chapter is the worst one so far. It'll get worse. It has. God's people, we keep doing the same thing. But if we want to do something different, it'd be to follow his plan. Instead, what happens is Abimelech Unlike his dad, who at least in word says he's going to follow God's plan, but then in action doesn't, he just says, no, I've got a better plan. If the problem is there's no king, how about me? I'll be the king. But remember, remember what the dad did. The dad said, no, 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 there's only supposed to be one king. It's supposed to be God. That's what he said. But if you go back to Gideon's life, I told you, God's very prominent in chapter 6. It's him speaking. The angel of the Lord shows up, threshing floor. He's afraid. I can't do it. I'm just a farmer. You're a mighty warrior. This is what you're going to do. In chapter 7, remember the story. This is the famous story. This is when the fleece gets talked about and some of that stuff. And Pastor Dave gave a hat tip to it because I made them and all that kind of deal. That, that was not about finding out what God's plan is. If you've ever heard it presented that way or used the passage that way, that's not what it's talking about. 
it's reassurance that you're going to be with me in the place. Gideon already knew what he was supposed to do. He wasn't asking God for some information. He was going, are you going to be with me? Are you? And because of his weak faith, God assured him in that. But remember what the plan was? You're going to go fight. You've got too many people. Too many people. We're the smallest nation. That's why you picked us. Too many. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. Huh? Bunch of guys go home. All right. Now, I want you to recruit some soldiers based on the way they drink water. What? Can you imagine if there's an army recruiter out in the lobby today at the drinking fountain? No, no, no. You. You come with me. Why? I saw how you drink that water. I don't even know how to use a sword. Don't worry. We're going to use jars and torches. Let's go. Can you yell? <laughs> yeah, I'm going with the scared people now. Like, this is weird. God intentionally whittles the army down to 300. What God's doing is he's trying to make it so evident that the only way they could have victory was if God did it, and so then God should get all the glory. But do you remember what happened? Do you know, have you looked at the story? What happened? Not just the flannel graph. Do you know what happens in that story? So Gideon gets called. I don't know. I can't do this. I'm with you. Yep, even the fleeces. I'll assure you. I'm going to do it, Gideon. All right, would you just come on? He goes. He goes to the battle. Then they win. And do you know what happens in chapter 8? In chapter 8, if you got your Bible, you can go back a little bit. The people want to make Gideon king. Not give God glory. They say, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's who's supposed to be your king. You're supposed to do what he says. Follow his plan. Not a king's plan. Not my son's plan because we were born in some family together. God's plan. But then the next verse, Gideon's not that much different than his dad. Watch this. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you. Give me earrings from his spoil and I'm going to collect taxes like a king. And then you keep reading and you see that he multiplied wives. Now Gideon had 70 sons in verse 30. Whoa! I see some of y'all come with your minivans and some of you even have like big cargo vans and like five kids, 10 kids. Ain't none of y'all got 70 kids because this is not from one woman. This is multiple wives. Oh, and by the way, Abimelech isn't from one of those wives. These are the 70 sons that Abimelech killed in verses one through six. Abimelech is from a concubine. If you don't know what a concubine is, a concubine oftentimes would live at their own home with their mom and dad. They didn't take the name of the man who would come and they weren't having tea together. If you don't pick up what I'm putting down, come to the Israel meeting. I'll tell you more Bible details. <laughs> and so Abimelech is, do you know what the name Abimelech means? Ab, Ab, my father the king, got a seminary student in the front row. How about you, Spiro? Ab's father and Melech, and you'll see it later in the Bible. Other kings are called this. The king, my father the king. He said in verse 23, I'm not going to be the king, and my son's not going to be the king, but then he's got this little thing on the side that other people don't know about. And when he has a kid with that lady, your daddy's the king. It's because it's how he functions. Now Abimelech says, what dad wouldn't say, I'm just going to say it. But one generation tolerates, the next generation celebrates. And so now you've got him going, for God's plan, God, dad did that in words, but we know what the deeds are. I'm just going to go do my thing. And he becomes a slaughterer. He kills 70 people to take the throne. There's one guy who gets away, and that guy preaches against him in the next several verses here. But what you see is what Jesus confronts through the prophet Isaiah 
In Isaiah 53, you people praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. What Jesus says to the religious leaders in his day, you people praise me with your lips. Why? What were they doing? The religious leaders in Jesus' day were telling all the people in their temple, churches, no, 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 don't take care of your parents with your money because that money's been devoted to God. So give it to God. Who gets the money that's devoted to God? Those guys? A lot like Gideon. You say God stuff, but if we look at your life, hollow words, empty life. That was Gideon. He did some things. He had some victory when he followed God's plan. But then Abimelech doesn't follow God's plan, and we see what happens. He leads people to follow him based on what they see rather than what God says. And that's why it gets really dark. I don't want to overcomplicate applying this. There's a lot of things about the Bible, about God, about life that are complicated. So I'm not trying to oversimplify either. But when things aren't complicated, sometimes we make things harder than they need to be. So after the service, uh, there's one young lady, a lot of times will come up to me, or her dad's on the worship team, and she'll ask, me, she'll ask me questions like this. Can God make a rock bigger than he can lift? And I'm like, I don't know. That's the real answer. But we could talk for a while about how God is not actually physical. He's a spirit, and so he can do anything, but he exists outside of time. So let's, and then we can, it gets complicated. This is not complicated. What does it mean to follow God's plan? do what he says. It's not complicated. Now, there are times where there's ethical issues that are complicated. I'm trying to oversimplify that. There's some commands, like if I say to you, just obey his commands. Some of you be like, well, can I eat shellfish? My shirt's part polyester and part cotton. Am I sinning? Nah, just simmer down. And we can talk about like the moral law, like murder, or you know, the, the civil law, things like how they're supposed to run their court system. And are we still supposed to do that? And we can debate all those things, but Can you imagine with me for a second just this? Think about the energy you spend on other things in life. Whether it's a hobby, your career, finding something to watch on Netflix, who knows? If we took 50% of the energy that we spend trying to get professional success, or trying to be a good parent, or trying to do whatever it is that we do, and try to discover what God has for us, how different would our life be? And what if for 30 days we said, whatever you say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to read my Bible. Whatever it says, I'm going to do that. For 30 days, without question, he says it, I'm going to do it. Not, here's what I see, and that probably doesn't really mean this for me, and don't complicate. It's like if I tell my kids, I want you to mow the lawn. But I thought maybe you wanted me to play Xbox first. Why? Why? Why would you think that? (laughs) Mow the lawn. Yeah, but I couldn't get it started. And what? You were going to wait for me? Just figure it out. But I, I don't know. Did you want our lawn or like the neighbor's lawn? Do I have to weed? Do you want me to blow it off too? Just do it. What, what commands? Well, love God. How about that? We'll start with that. Well, how do we know if we love God? Jesus answered that. <laughs> if you love me, obey my commands. Like what? How about John 13? After he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, a new command I've given you. A new command? He quotes Leviticus. We skip Leviticus a lot of times. I do too, so I'm a pastor. Um, love one another. Well, what does that look like? I mean, he like tells this story one time in Luke chapter 10 after he, he, people trying to complicate things. Love God, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? One of the Bible. Of course it's, the, it's those seminary guys. Why? 
Why in the world? Who's my neighbor? And then he tells this story that gets hijacked for social agendas. It gets hijacked for all kinds of agendas. The point of the story is anybody God brings in your path, that's your neighbor. How am I supposed to love? Well, first I need to love myself. That's psychology. That's not what the passage is teaching. We all love ourselves. Now, some of us are really twisted on what we think love is. Like intentionally self-destroy. But we all love ourselves. You do for that person what you'd want done if you were in that person's situation. That's what it is. That's what the story is about. Well, what about direct commands? There's like direct commands. We could pick the, like maybe you read, what if you're reading the Old Testament? How about just stick to the top 10 if you're in the Old Testament? Nine of them are repeated in the New Testament anyways. So the only one that's not is Sabbath. And then let seminary people argue about whether you have to have a Sabbath or not. Here's what I'll tell you. You should rest. There you go. But if you're going to skip one, don't skip the murder one. How about that? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. I'll just give you a summary of them. Uh, they say things like this. You shall have no other gods before me. If we just get that one, they'd all fall into place. The next one, uh, verses 4 through 6, don't have any idols. So those are images of our gods. Now for us, I, I've told you lots of times, like it's not statues at the Chinese buffet. It's not just a you know, sculpture of something. But it's like for some of you, if money's your god, then your Mercedes is probably your idol. It's the image of what your God is. Now, you can drive a Mercedes. Don't feel guilty if you've got a Mercedes that carries like 50 kids, all right? I'm not trying to... Glad you're here today. Because maybe it's not. It depends on what your idol is, the image of the idol. Some of you, like got a six-pack, a 12-pack, you look awesome. Well, if your image is your idol, then your six-pack's probably... Or your image, that's the false god, then the idol is what you're putting out, what you're showing everybody. But... Maybe you're just in shape. That's awesome. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It could be good or it could be bad. It depends what's going on in your heart. But some of you might need to sell the Mercedes or eat some brownies. <laughs> Exodus 20, verse 7. Uh, don't take the, make, carries, the Lord's name carries weight. He's not your buddy. Uh, the workaholics one, verses 8 through 11, uh, about the rest. If you stop, the world doesn't. Neither does God. Verse 12, honor your parents. It's the first one with a promise. My parents aren't honorable. It doesn't say anything about that, but you have a responsibility in how you respond to them. Don't murder. Boom, at least I got that one. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, <laughs> Jesus confronting the people who trump what's actually intended with just mere outward behavior says, you've heard that it's said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But, oh man, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, oh man, even if you're in your car and they can't hear you. Oops. I have broken all of them, I think. No adultery in verse 14. All right, well, Jesus says, you've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery, but if Jesus would stop saying but, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman and women, you're not exempt, that looks at a man, by the way, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. Don't steal. That's not just money. Gideon was stealing God's glory. See, some people have a position and they use it to give God's glory and some people know how to talk about God's glory to accomplish their position. You know your heart. Don't lie about your neighbor, specifically, verse 16. Don't covet, and this really would cover all of them. What if for 30 days we just did those? But then when we, we fail, lean into his promises. Confess. 
Keep a short account of your sin. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you of your sin. But if you live based on what you see rather than what he says, I see one of my friends here, his favorite promise is John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Who's claiming that as their promise? And Jesus says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Sometimes I look at the world and it doesn't look like God's overcome it. But if I live according to what I see, I'm not living by faith. But he says, you will have trouble. Sometimes all you can see is your trouble or the trouble. Take heart, be courageous is what that's saying. Because you're on the winning team, even if they cut your head off today. That's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 defines it, examples. We don't have time. You can read it on your own. The simple application is, you want to know God's plan? But Pastor Scott, I want to know who to marry. Pastor Scott, I want to know where to work. I want to know whether I should quit this job. I want to know whether or not I should go to this church. I want to know. Maybe you're asking bad questions right now. Not that he doesn't care about those things. But if you're not even doing what he clearly says, why do you want to know about stuff that he doesn't clearly say? What if for 30 days we just did whatever he says? I bet you the other stuff would become more clear. Uh, But there's more to this passage in Judges chapter 9, and we'll have to go kind of quick here, but uh, it says uh, after verse 6, what happens, and I'll just summarize it, is that the one brother who escapes, and some of you are going to go to Israel with us. We go to a Bible spot uh, on almost every day, but there's one day when we go to, it's strictly historical, it's Masada. And uh, what happens there, uh, first place there was psychological warfare. There's a few people that survive because they hid. Everybody else gets killed. That's what happened with Jotham. But Jotham doesn't stay in hiding. He sets up his own pulpit on a stone and he starts yelling to the people of, where's the town? Shechem. Oh, the place, Shechem is the place where Abraham was called to follow God. Shechem is the place where Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Shechem is a place of renewal. But for Abimelech and everybody who does what's right in their own eyes, the place that's meant to be a place of renewal, a place of failure, is a place of spiral. You get to decide. And so when Jotham stands up, he says, you decide whether you should follow, and he makes up a story about trees. We don't have time to get into all that. Some of the trees are productive. There's one kind of tree that's not productive. That's the bad king, Abimelech. He says, you're gonna, you didn't honor my dad, and Gideon, and he was willing to die for you. Now you're going to make a guy who all he does is kill people? Your king? And then he says, you decide, this is a Scott paraphrase, you decide who, which horse you're going to hitch your trailer to and see how that works out for you. And then he, he runs. Do you know why he runs? Because he's not an idiot. <laughs> this guy just killed all my brothers. And if you read the Bible, whenever a prophet stands up and gives a prophetic word that people don't like, God's people kill him. So he runs. But then everything he said is what happens in chapter 9. In chapter 9, what you see, and here's what we should take away, I think, for an application, but there's more, more than I can say, is that we need to be aware of what our weak spots are. In the military, they call it a breach. Where are we most vulnerable? Where are we most likely to be attacked? The chink in your armor. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told there's a shield of faith. Okay, where, where would your faith be most likely attacked if you were going to attack you? And the way that I said it for the study for the small groups is we must protect our points of attack. And in that, there's both the where and the when of your points of attack. And do you know them about yourself? Because what happens in this passage, it's very interesting. 
If I were a seminary student, I would definitely spend more time on this passage than we're going to do today. Uh, Judges chapter 9 and verse 22 and 23, after Jotham gets up and gives his prophecy, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And then look at verse 23, and God sent an evil spirit. We would have never thought this was God. We would have given credit to Satan for this. But God's word tells us it was him. What does that mean? Does that mean that God's the author of evil? Because there's times in the Bible where it's like God allows Satan to do stuff. Job. Nothing happened in Job's life that didn't first pass through the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. But remember, there was a battle taking place that Job couldn't see. That was why Job, that was, he didn't get it. But we get it because we're reading it. We only know because we're reading it. When we're living it, we don't know. So we should be very humble about talking about circumstances. Because really, we don't know. Now, we know there's stuff going on that we don't see. Ephesians chapter 6, that we're supposed to be ready to put on the full armor of God, to take our stand against the enemy, to resist when the enemy comes. But here, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of where? But where was he king? Shechem. Who were the people he convinced to follow him? Shechem. We've got a civil war happening. The way that Abimelech took power was he appealed to their fear. He appealed to the things that they felt like they were misrepresented in, that they were misunderstood and marginalized. I'm one of you, he said to them. And what's better, 70 or 1? I'm the solution to your problems. All God did here, it's like the complicated question I get sometimes from atheists and, and serious Bible students. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did that make God the one that caused the problem? No. He accelerated what was already true. What he's doing here is he's exposing the problems that are already evident in Abimelech's life. He manipulated these people for his own gain. He was not their leader. He was leading to consume them. The prophecy is that they will experience a wrath of fire from him and then that he will experience a wrath. Uh, so what happens in the story, we don't have time to read it all, is that he comes, traps them into a tower, burns the tower down, a thousand people die. Then he goes on and he continues to fight, thinks he's just going to kick everybody's butt, and he gets too close to the wall. And a woman drops a stone on his head. It's 18 inches around. And that stone doesn't kill him, but he knows he's going to die. And so in verses 53 and 54 of chapter 9, it says this, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then, so he's not dead. Then he called, quick, this guy's about to go to hell. And look at what his priorities are. He called quickly to a young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. He's worried about his reputation. Um, we all know you're bad. And you're trying, to write, you're trying to write the history book and make it look like you were courageous and make it look like you were a great king. You're going to hell. Your prayers are so out of whack. Yeah, God sent an evil spirit, and it illustrated, you could say this was an act of mercy. Because if he just reigned comfortably for 40, 50, 60 years, he ever going to turn to God? So even God's judgment is mercy. He's pointing out to him, you, you've got a problem. Why don't you cry? No one cries out here. When you cry, he comes. They don't cry out. And he didn't see that it was his pride that was the very thing that was going to crush him. Literally, in the passage, and, metaphorically, what's taking place in his life. Do you know what it is for you? I remember about six months ago, I told a story. A couple of you might remember. 
it was about a guy who was climbing with his buddy, and they had gone up on this mountain, they were coming back down, and the guy got to a, a, a difficult decision point where he had to decide, do I cut my friend loose and then he dies, or do I not cut him loose and we're both going to die? He cuts his friend loose. The guy breaks his leg, falls in a pit, crawls for like ever, just to survive. After I told that story, I come down off the stage, and a friend of mine who attends the first service, he's an accomplished mountain climber, He's climbed, you know, El Capitan, like all these different mountains. And so he says to me, he said, did you know that most accidents, I think it's 85%, he said, happen on the descent of climbing a mountain? I said, why? He said, because most climbers overestimate their ability to get to the top and underestimate the amount of energy it's going to take to get back to the bottom. And they don't have a plan. Sometimes they trigger an avalanche. Sometimes they just miss a grip. Sometimes they get so exhausted they just can't do it. Sometimes they don't rope in, right? Like there's lots of like little technical details, but it's all the same thing. They didn't plan and they over and underestimated. The way I'd say it spiritually is we're oftentimes vulnerable after victory. Have you ever read about Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18? Incredible passage. He battles 450 prophets of Baal, calls fire down from heaven. God does a miracle. Have you read chapter 19? Those of you who are chuckling have read chapter 19. There's one woman, a prophetess, evil. Her name's Jezebel. That name becomes synonymous with evil later in the Bible. She says, I'm going I'm to do to you what you did to them. If by the end of the day, that doesn't happen. And he says to God, I want to die. That's enough. He's exhausted. When? When are you most vulnerable? He's hungry. He's lonely. He's tired. Don't make a decision in any of those emotional states. Later he says, I'm the only righteous person left. You'll become self-righteous, I promise. You could be the most morally corrupt person ever and you think you're better than everybody. <laughs> you don't make decisions when you're hungry and angry and tired and lonely and oftentimes for some of you after victory. I know that's true for me. Some of you it's after defeat. Different people, that when for you, when is your time? You know what God's advice to him is? It's not go pray. It's once you have a snack. And you read 1 Kings chapter 19, and three times he's told to eat. Not once. He goes to sleep. All right, good. He got a nap. That's good. Wakes up. The angel says to him, eat something. Then he falls back to sleep. Eat something again. Eats, eats. Takes a nap, takes a nap. Some of you just need a nap. Take some vacation days. Because you're becoming spiritually vulnerable and you don't know it. The best thing some of you can do spiritually is sleep. But others of you, it's different. Different things for different people. Do you know your things? Because if you don't know your things, you make the rest of us vulnerable. Because we're actually in this together. And we don't like to talk about that. We don't do it very much in the American church. Individualism's really high in America. And we you know, just close our eyes and you have your time with the Lord. And you do your thing, even at communion, which is showing our unity together. We, and it's good to repent. And you do have individual things. But do other people know your things? I was talking to somebody at the first service. Their thing was sexual immorality. I said, who else knows? I'm not your priest. We believe in the priesthood of believers. I'm a pastor. I'll pray with you. We can talk through this. But I can't be everybody's friend. So who are your friends? That's what I said to him. What about you? Different things, different people. If no one else knows, you're making the rest of us vulnerable. Because when you go down, there's a ripple effect. It impacts people you don't even know, I promise. And you think no one knows about it. It impacts everything. 
I was uh, with a friend that's in the first service as well. He's a owner of Triangle Rack Club, and he said that he'd teach my oldest daughter and I how to climb rope climbing at their gym. And so I went to their gym, and we're going. I'm thinking my daughter and I kind of compete against each other and talk about different things and talking trash and who can go up the wall the fastest. What I didn't realize it was actually team sport. <laughs> And so she goes up, but you know, I'm like, this isn't that bad. Like I weigh a lot more than she does, no comments. And uh, I'm holding the rope and she's doing her thing. And then she comes back down and he says, now you gotta pay attention because if your dad falls and you're not paying attention, boom, he hits the deck. I'm like, whoa, this is not a revenge moment for you, honey. <laughs> you know, I grounded you. I don't need to be like, I'll ground him. Like here, <laughs> paying attention, baby, you need to pay attention here. So are we in this together or not? Do you know the weaknesses of the people that you're allegedly in life with? Whether that's your spouse or your friends, your small group. Who are your people? And it can't be a thousand. What about a thousand people that attend our church on a Sunday? It can't be a thousand. But you've got to have like ten, three. Jesus had twelve and three. One was a betrayer. Yeah, you don't like them all the same. <laughs> but do you have some? And do they know? Because that might be the key from your failure becoming a turning point rather than a spiral. Who was telling Abimelech, you selfish jerk. You're making this all about you. God wants you, Abimelech, to go on a path of renewal and lead the people on a path of renewal. But instead, you're taking us on a deeper and deeper spiral because of your pride. The New Testament says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old is, so there was an old and now there's a new. Behold, the new has come. What we look to and what our souls long for and what the earth is crying out for, Revelation 21.5. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. One of the greatest prophetic statements in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. It's what Peter, Peter who was broken and failed and then is restored and goes to preach on the day of Pentecost, preaches from Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 says this, I'll restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten so I can make the latter years better than the earlier years. And some of you are stuck in shame or think that you're just this thing because you've made these bad decisions. God wants renewal. The failure can be a turning point to renewal. Does anyone need that? Anyone honest enough about that? Anyone here failed? All of us. Father, we come before you today. Some of us bow our heads and close our eyes. Some of us keep our heads up and look to you. And some of us talk out loud and some of us silently. And the worship team's going to come. I just want you to know that. They're going to lead us in a song. But what's going on in your heart? No, mistress, don't worry about lunch right now. Don't worry about whether your kid's crying. We've got people that are trained for that. You watch it online at home? Or maybe in a couple years from now? Where are you at? You feel defeated? Because he's overcome the world. Are you with him? The only way you're with him is if you've acknowledged your failure, that you're a sinner, that you're in need of a savior, the wages of sin, what you get because of what you do is separation from him forever. But he gives you a gift. You don't earn a gift. You just have to take it. Have you received his love? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you received what he's offering you? I'm not asking if you know about it. I'm not even asking if you can quote a verse about it. Have you received it? Whole generations that don't know him but know of him. And when you cry to him, he'll come. Some of you need to cry out to him to receive that love, to receive that forgiveness, to receive Jesus as your Savior. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 say that if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that he defeated death. Talk about that's the biggest ending, obstacle, stopper, 
failure. Death was never even supposed to be part of the plan. Just live in obedience, but we couldn't. Adam and Eve couldn't. No one else could. We all sinned. We fall short. So we needed a savior. And the way he saved us is he defeated death. And he took the penalty for our sins. And he offers to rescue you from yourself. And to call you to his mission. You want to receive that invitation? Ask him into your life. You cry, he comes. Call upon him to be Lord. And he promises that he will save you. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Some of you here know that and you know him. But you still need renewal. You lean into those promises and follow the commands. The promises are like the fuel, the motivation, the fuel in your engine. Think about a train or a car, whatever. It's what keeps you going. And the commands are the direction. They're like the tracks. These are the guardrails. This is where you run. This is the path. A lot of times we think it's God trying to rob us from life. This is the path of life. And lean into the promises and follow the commands some promises to lean into. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you've blown it every time, every moment, up until now. You'll blow it again, and he'll be right there. And you cry, and he comes. Not an excuse to fail. Would you rather be following, serving the one who created you and designed you and has had a plan for you from the beginning of time, a slave to righteousness, Romans 6, or a slave to sin, the one who wants to rob, steal, and destroy you? You get to decide. You can do what you think is right, or what he says. That's faith. God, help us to do what you say in spite of what we see or how we feel when we wake up or what we feel like doing in the moment. Protect us from being like Esau who would trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. Who would trade a marriage for a one-night stand. Who would trade their integrity for a few dollars. Father, I pray that wouldn't be true for anybody here. And that if we know where we're vulnerable, that so would some other people. And that we'd walk with them, and that you'd walk with us. And then when we do fail, you'd make the future years better than the ones that have been eaten by locust or our own greed or self-centeredness or somebody else's bad decisions. We want you. And we're going to sing that you're enough and that you're all that we need and if it's not true, I pray like the guy who says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. When we sing it, if it's not true, will you help make it true in our hearts while we sing it? And I'll let Pastor Bryce wrap up our prayer time, but you just pause and pray as needed. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.